Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We're continuing a series we began last time called Eating with Jesus. And the sobering reality is if you're going to be eating with Jesus, that means you're going to be eating with sinners. If you're eating with Jesus, you're always eating with sinners. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? That's a question we want to explore this morning. We're going to be looking at, at a few passages in our, our text in chapters 14 and 15 from Luke, but I just want you to hear a, a taste of each one. This is from Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then finally from verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We ask that you would um, speak to us, that you would set aside the the limitations of my own understanding, and instead, through your word, minister to your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, about 25 or 30 years ago, the name New York City was synonymous with crime. It seemed like every movie that was set in New York, you would see these apocalyptic streetscapes covered in graffiti, with gangs roaming around, and it just seemed like if you ever made the mistake of going to New York City, you were at least going to be robbed, but probably also murdered. And so as a result, you can imagine there was quite an impact on tourism. Uh, But that changed. That changed, and and the reputation of the city has, has come a long way since then, and part of the reason why is something called CompStat. CompStat was a computer program used by the New York police to create a statistical record, a model of all of the crime actually being committed. People would fill out police reports in the old days, but there was so much paper, it was hard to really get a handle on what was going on. But CompStat changed that. Thanks to the technology that the computer represented now, you could get a handle on what was really going on. You could see what was happening in real time. You could track over time increases in decreases in crime. It was the dawn of a new era in law enforcement. Modern policing was taking shape. And now we would be able to measure whether or not crime was being effectively fought, whether or not the problem of crime that had overwhelmed the city was being rolled back. Something objective was now in place, where it had all been impressions. Your idea of what was going on was all based on stories you heard, on on images that you saw at the movies. Now there were statistics. Now there were concrete facts where we could actually measure how many murders, 
how many robberies, what was actually happening. It was a good thing. And it sounds good, right? If you've got a big problem and you don't really understand what's going on, if you have no way of measuring whether or not your efforts are effective, then you could work year after year and actually never know whether or not what you're doing is the right thing. So this tool was valuable. It it allowed the police to focus on things that were effective. That makes so much sense. And as a result, this uh, program and this way of policing spread throughout the nation, and it transformed the face of law enforcement. But along with that change, one thing remained the same, a little thing called human nature. And it turns out that if you take a group of people who are responsible for enforcing the good and you apply political pressure on those people to make things better, and now you have an objective standard by which you can measure whether or not they are doing their jobs effectively, um, what they tend to do is find ways around the system. If you've ever seen the uh, epic crime drama, The Wire, you're familiar with the way that that show satirizes this phenomenon of modern policing. There's a scene in Baltimore where all of the executives of the police department are gathered around this sort of round table, and each department has to report on its crime statistics. And as a man gets up and he talks about all of the, the, the crimes that have happened in his district, his bosses pressure him to reclassify those incidents. A man gets up and he says, well, we had a breaking and entering. And they say, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just vandalism. Maybe there's just a broken window there and and nobody actually broke in. And so what was a breaking and entering becomes vandalism. And over time, as the acts, as the deeds are reclassified, crime goes down. And it's possible to go into the meeting with murders up and finish the meeting, and murders are now going down. And nothing's happened except the, the, the paper has been shuffled. In the wire, they call this juking the stats. Nothing's changed in the outside world. All that's happened is we've manipulated the system to make it look as if something has changed. We've reclassified the crimes. We've reclassified what counts as a crime. If you think about it, if you're worried about lawlessness, the fastest way to eliminate lawlessness is to eliminate law. Because nothing's illegal if we don't pass laws against it. Right? So it makes perfect sense. It is easier to manipulate the stats and make the problem go away than it is to actually solve the problem. Especially if Once you start measuring things, you find out that the scale of the problem is too immense for you to do anything about it. Juking the stats doesn't change reality. It doesn't make murdered people come back to life. But it does make the stats look better. As long as we're willing to ignore what's happening in reality, then everything is fine. When the scribes and Pharisees say about Jesus that this man receives sinners and eats with them, there's a certain assumption that they think must be happening. There's something Jesus must be doing in order to receive sinners and eat with them. 
As critics assume that to receive sinners and eat with them, Jesus must ignore sin. The reason why Jesus admits sinners to his table is he's overlooking the fact that they're sinners. He's not inquiring too deeply into their lives. And as a result, he can have sort of a welcoming policy. He can embrace all comers because he's pretending like the reality of their sin does not exist. Essentially, they're accusing Jesus of juking the stats. He's making it look good. He's making it look welcoming and inviting. But the reality is that table that seems so warm and inviting is full of sinners. It's full of unrighteous people that Jesus should not be receiving. For the Pharisees, the law of God is a little bit like Compstat. It's the law of God that gives us the objective measure that allows us to see how much sin there is, how big the problem is, that gives us a way of measuring whether or not righteousness is prevailing in the world. And I think they're actually right about this. The way they see the law is not so different from the way that the Apostle Paul sees the purpose of God's law revealed in the Old Testament. Paul says that the law was given in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans 7.13. Earlier in Romans in chapter 5, he notes that the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, like Kopstadt, the law exists to show us how bad the situation really is. And when you see how bad the situation is, there's only two responses. Once you glimpse the reality of sin, then all you can do, if you're a righteous person, if you're like the Pharisees and the scribes, all you can do is keep the law and stay away from people who don't. It's the most you can do. Keep the law and separate yourself from sinners, and Jesus fails to do this. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. We don't sympathize with the Pharisees and the scribes as they criticize Jesus. Obviously, they're wrong to condemn Jesus, but we do tend to assume that they're right in their analysis of the situation. Like they're wrong to say Jesus is doing a bad thing, but they're right in the way they describe the thing that Jesus is doing, if you see the distinction there. They see clearly what it means for Jesus to receive sinners and eat with them. It's just that they disagree with what they means, what, what that means. Um, they're right in the way they interpret the actions of Jesus. We tell ourselves, yeah, it's true. Jesus ignored sin so that he could receive sinners and eat with them. But instead of condemning Jesus for this, I'm actually relieved. I'm happy to see Jesus ignoring that sin because I also would like to ignore it. If the problem with Jesus is that he's receiving sinners and eating with them, instead of talking about their sin... I don't have a problem with that because that's what I'd like to do as well. 
I too would like to welcome sinners and, and eat with them and not mention the S word. And so if Jesus is giving us an example to follow, even if the Pharisees have a problem with it, it's inspiring to us. It's giving us permission to do the thing that we want to do. You don't have to talk about sin. Here's Jesus showing you that you don't have to talk about sin, showing you by his example. Just do what Jesus does. Just receive sinners and eat with them. Don't judge, just love like Jesus does. Have you ever asked yourself why it's such a struggle? I mean, I think it is a struggle. I don't know about you, but, but I don't like to confront other people about their sin. I don't like to, to condemn other people's actions and choices as sinful, but why? And why is that such a hard thing to do? And for some of us, it, it's hard for our own sake. It's hard to call something sin because we have not yet come to the point of seeing ourselves as sinners. I don't agree that the things I do and love are sin, so why would I call the things that other people do and love sin? We are, in other words, unrepentant. If you don't see yourself as a sinner in the eyes of God, then obviously you're going to struggle with the idea that other people are sinners. To distance yourself from your own desires, to humble yourself in that way, it goes against the dictates of pride. It's a difficult thing to do. Sometimes we don't struggle with talking about sin for our own sake, though sometimes it's for the sake of others. A lot of us accept that we're sinners. We have no problem confessing our own sin. It's difficult, though, to, to talk about other people as sinners. It would be offensive to label someone as a sinner, and we tell ourselves that um, this is loving, not to label other people as sinners in this way. And maybe it is on some level, but isn't there also a social cost that we seek to avoid paying in that? In other words, it would be easier for all of us to call sinful what the Bible calls sinful if there wasn't a price to pay for saying that sort of thing out loud. It used to be in the era of Christendom when everybody gave lip service to Scripture that people would agree, oh yes, whatever the Bible condemns as sinful, that's sinful. Whether they did those things or not, they agreed that they were sinful because there was a lot of cultural inertia behind that reality. There would have been a social cost to deny it. But the times have changed, and it's just the opposite now. In order to call things sinful, we have to pay a certain price. And it's not always an easy price to pay. But if you think about it, that's not really a qualm that we have for the sake of others. It's just another concern we have for ourselves. If we don't want to humble ourselves before God, that's pride in one sense. But if we don't want to pay a cost in the eyes of other people, that's pride working in another direction. It's interesting. 
we're sometimes willing to pay that price to admit to God, to humble ourselves before God and say, yes, I am a sinner. But not willing to humble ourselves in the face of other people. Not willing to suffer our pride to, to flag in the eyes of others. So we fear their scorn more than God's. It's easy to convince ourselves that in a culture of grace, we shouldn't talk about sin, or at most we should confess our own sins and not talk about anyone else's sin because that wouldn't be gracious. And it seems as if Jesus in Luke 15 maybe is giving us license. But the thing is, Jesus isn't less demanding than his critics. He's actually more demanding than they are, much more demanding than they are. The same Jesus who is receiving sinners and eating with them in Luke 15, in Luke 14, tells a story that's often labeled uh, the cost of discipleship. He starts speaking about what it means to follow him. You find this in Luke 14. This is starting in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, um, able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, well, you need to hate your father and mother and your brother and sister. You need to hate your wife. You need to hate your children. And, oh, you need to hate yourself. And if you don't qualify, you cannot be my disciple. If you have a study Bible, you'll probably have a note there. And and that use of of the word hate, it's a Semiticism. It it comes from Hebrew, and the sense of it is to love less. So if you look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, you'll see it translated there. Uh, Similar idea, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So... The sense of hate isn't quite what it sounds like. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, now that you're my disciple, I want you to go to your parents' house and burn it down you know, and show them how much you hate them. That's not what he's saying. Just you need to value me more than you value them. And, and if you're a devout Christian, you feel like you've really gotten off a hook by making that point. Jesus isn't saying you need to hate your parents. He's just saying you need to love them less than you love him. Oh, you don't have to absolutely abominate your children. You just have to put God ahead of your children, which I don't think sounds it makes it sound that much better. The demand that's being made here is a is a huge demand. 
in order to be my disciple, you have to value me above everything. You have to renounce all that you have in order to be Christ's disciple. That's a big ask. Jesus has just said these words. He's just drawn this line And then you read at the beginning of chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's not the effect you would expect. You would think this was going to be one of those instances where Jesus just said we have to hate everything that we love, including ourselves, in order to follow him. I think we should go listen to that other rabbi who's just all about love and acceptance. That does happen in other instances. Jesus says hard things and people say, you know what, I've had enough of this Jesus. But here, it's kind of interesting. He's being judged, he's being rejected, but not by tax collectors and sinners, but by righteous people. Those tax collectors and sinners, even though they've just been told that they've got to sacrifice and renounce everything they hold dear, In order to be his disciple, they are drawing near to hear him. The critics are misreading Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners are not letting their pride keep them from drawing near to Jesus. That's what the Pharisees are doing. It's not the sinners who are holding back because the cost is too high. It's the righteous. It's the righteous who won't come near. And they don't see what's happening at the table accurately. There's a cost to discipleship, but discipleship is not about losing. Discipleship is about finding. When Jesus is criticized for receiving sinners and eating with them, he responds. He doesn't let the accusation stand, but he answers, as Jesus often does, cryptically. He answers with stories. He tells a series of stories, and and these stories, these three stories, are all stories of loss. He tells the story of a lost sheep. And then he follows that with the story of a lost coin. And then he follows that with the story of a lost son, the story of the prodigal son. These three stories come one after another, and this is how Jesus answers the criticism that he receives sinners and eats with them. We won't look at all three of those stories this morning, just the first two I want to keep in mind. The third we'll save for later, but there are some interesting patterns that you see when you look at the stories together. Uh, The first two stories are relatively brief. Uh, Starting in verse 3, here's the story of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And then even shorter still, the story of a lost coin. 
What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the third story is the story of the lost son, the son who goes away, takes his inheritance early, and then returns to his father and is received back to his father. Oftentimes we think of the stories in isolation, but when you see them together in a, in a, a linked chain, you see them as a response to the criticism that's been raised by the Pharisees. Some interesting things emerge. There's a building of the stakes throughout the stories. So you think about it. The story of the lost sheep, what's at stake? Literally one sheep out of a hundred. That's one to a hundred. That's one percent of the sheep that are lost. So the stakes are relatively low. If that sheep is never found, there is still a flock of 99 that most of us would assume is intact if we looked at it. We wouldn't even notice that anything was missing. But in the next story, the stakes are raised. It's not one out of 100, but this woman who possesses 10 coins loses one. So bear with me, I'm not great at math, but that's 10% of her wealth that has gone away, that she has lost, and so she searches in order to find it. In the story of a lost son, the stakes are even, one to one. A man has two sons, and he loses one of them. So the stakes raise story by story, get closer and closer to the heart of the point that Jesus is making. But that's not the only change. There's also a change in the nature of the bond. In the first story, there's a shepherd searching for a lost sheep. A shepherd is a person who has a responsibility to the flock. It's his job. It's his duty to return the flock intact. So in searching for that lost sheep and restoring it, this man is doing his duty. He's showing he's a conscientious shepherd. But the stakes are raised in the second story. This woman who loses her coin has lost 10% of her own wealth. That's a little closer than just duty, right? That's her well-being. That's her security that she has lost. So you can imagine she's even more desperate to see it restored. And in the final story of the lost son, it's not duty. It's not personal well-being that's at stake. It's, it's love. It's the father's heart, his love, his affection for his son that is at stake. Things get more and more serious as Jesus progresses. More importantly, though, these are not just stories of loss. The lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son all are restored. So these are stories of loss and restoration. In fact, the moral of the story, in the two that we've just seen, the moral of the story is the fact of restoration. That's the cause for joy. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In reality, to receive sinners and eat with them, Jesus doesn't ignore the problem of sin. 
to receive sinners and eat with them, Jesus solves the problem of sin. He doesn't ignore the fact that they're sinners. He restores the sinners. He makes them whole again. The parables illustrate that his critics and us have gotten it wrong. We've misunderstood how it is that Jesus can sit at the table with sinners and eat with them. To receive sinners and eat with them, Jesus doesn't have to ignore their sin because he actually has the power to atone for it. He can actually solve the problem. The sinners Jesus receives and gathers at his table are not unrepentant libertines, just like they're not unrepentant Pharisees. They're repentant sinners being reconciled to God through Christ and at a great cost to themselves and to Christ, a cost that the unrepentant cannot bear to witness or acknowledge. There's a reason why none of us see what's happening at the table for what it truly is because of how much it costs for Jesus to receive sinners and eat with them. So how do we approach the reality of sin rightly? We cannot receive sinners and eat with them by dealing with their sin as Jesus does. We don't have the power to do that. And I want to urge you not to receive sinners and eat with them by merely ignoring their sin. We shouldn't. Because all we're doing in that instance is juking the stats. All we're doing is hiding a reality that doesn't go away just because we refuse to name it. We're not only hiding the problem, we're also hiding the solution. How do you receive sinners and eat with them? How do we receive sinners and eat with them? There's only one answer. We receive the way that we were received. We're no different from any other sinner. The solution for them is the same as the solution for us. It's the same grace. It's the same cross. The only way to receive sinners and eat with them as a sinner yourself is to receive them in Christ, through Christ. Look, what you want to hear isn't always what you need to hear, right? Sometimes we desperately want to hear things, but they're not what we need to hear. We're surrounded by a world that wants to hear our acceptance. There's pressure not to name sin, sin, not to acknowledge that what God condemns is actually wrong. But if we shut up about sin, then we're giving the world what it wants, and and it should be pleased with us, we tell ourselves. We're not making a big deal out of it. The world wants acceptance, and I give it. But your acceptance is literally worthless. On the day of judgment, there is no sin that will be overlooked because you were okay with it. God won't stand in judgment over sin and say, oh, actually, Pastor Mark didn't have a problem with that one, so you're okay. 
I can give all the acceptance and the love that I want. I can tell you all of the stuff in this book that's no longer relevant and we don't need to worry about, and it doesn't mean anything in the eyes of God. My acceptance of sin is literally worthless, worse than that, and so is yours. It's no way to solve the problem of sin. All that is, is ignoring it. When the world comes to us asking for acceptance, we should be honest. You don't need my acceptance. You need Christ's atonement. I can give you my acceptance, but I give it for my own sake. I give it so you'll be pleased with me. Christ gives himself for your sake. So we have to talk about sin. But not the way the Pharisees talked about it. I mean, there's a reason why people don't want to talk about sin. And it's not always because we're such bad sinners. It's not always because we don't want to condemn. It's also because a lot of people have talked about sin in the wrong way and have given it a bad reputation. We don't want to talk about sin the way the Pharisees did. They pointed out sin because they imagined they were above that. They were better than that. For them, pointing to the sins of others was a way to build themselves up. You could point to the sins of others and say, I'm not like that. I'm better than that. And that's what most people hear when you even use the word. Yes, we must talk about sin. We must admit the reality of sin, but only as a means to an end. We only point out sin as a way of pointing to the solution to sin in the cross of Christ. Concealing it, Concealing sin, keeping silent about it, isn't love. If you love your neighbor, you don't ignore the reality of sin. Ah, but who's my neighbor? It's a good question. Jesus has asked that question in Luke chapter 10, a few chapters back. The same chapter that we were looking at a few weeks ago in the story of Mary and Martha. Right before that, Jesus has asked this question, who am I responsible to? Who's my neighbor? And just as he does... In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story in order to answer the question, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know this story. There's a man who is traveling, and he's beset by robbers who beat him. They rob him, and they leave him in the road for dead. And then two good men come along, a priest and a Levite, two religious, God-fearing men come along. And they step over this man in the street, and they go about their business for very pious reasons. They have important places to be. They have things they need to do. They don't really want to get themselves involved in the kind of sordid stuff that leads you to find yourself laying almost dead in the road. And so they separate themselves from this guy. They step over him and they keep going. They ignore the reality of his situation. And then a third man comes along. And the interesting thing is, unlike the men who went before, this man has no communal bond with the man in the street. The Samaritan is not from his tribe. He's not from his community. He doesn't have any sort of a family obligation to this man, but he creates a bond through his actions. Because when confronted by the reality of that man's situation, he doesn't step over it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't politely go on his way, convincing himself that's the thing to do. Instead, he helps. He helps. 
And through that choice, a culture of grace is born. Through that action, he shows himself to be a neighbor of this man. So if you want to know how to receive sinners and eat with them, you just have to ask yourself, who is my neighbor? And how do I treat my neighbors? How do I treat the people that God has placed around me? Nobody's asking you to judge. But if you're a neighbor, you are being asked to help. You are being asked to honestly admit the reality that the people all around you find themselves in. Don't convince yourself that the right thing to do in a world lying in sin is to step over it and keep walking. Ignoring sin won't fix it. You can't bind up wounds that you're pretending aren't even there. Instead, be a neighbor and share some grace. The way that sinners come to be received and eat at Jesus' table is through repentance, through reconciliation. That's how we came to be at Jesus' table. It is the only way. Our prayer is this. May Christ fill his table to overflowing. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.